So last week, we looked at the first part of this chapter, and it was about heresy, bad teaching. Now it's going to talk about what happens when you live bad teaching, right? So heresy um, is not whether or not you use a King James Version Bible, right? Heresy is not women wearing pants or having a TV in your home or not homeschooling your children or drinking caffeine or wearing makeup or getting a tattoo or listening to this kind of music or celebrating holidays or what brand of clothing you wear or if you eat crab and your steak rare, right? Heresy is not driving a Mercedes, but true save people drive Volkswagens, right? It's none of those things. But sometimes the church devolves into nitpickiness and it's wrong. You know what nitpicking is? It's picking the lice eggs out of someone's head. Does anyone want to do that? Right? Don't. It's freakish. It's like a monkey. Please don't. So heresy is one thing. Peter says it's denying the master that bought you. It's denying Jesus Christ. That's it. That God came in the flesh, lived the life that we should have lived, paid our ransom, and by faith in him, we get everything that he earned. That's Jesus. And when a person or a group denies that reality about Jesus, they become known as a cult, right? That's a cult. So for 2,000 years, when you step out of orthodoxy, which is broad, you step out of that orthodoxy when you deny who Jesus is. So Mormons deny who Jesus is. Jehovah's Witnesses deny who Jesus is. And the moment you do that, you step out of what has been known for 2,000 years. This is orthodox Christianity. And it's based on the person of Jesus Christ. So Peter says, they deny the Lord Jesus. And based on that denial... God's going to deal with it. He's going to take the trash out. But in the meantime, Peter's going to say, there are true consequences to living out bad theology, bad life, bad stuff, right? So um, in life, here's the truth. You will live what you believe. Core, you will live what you believe. You will do what you most want to do in every circumstance, Wait a second, Matt. I was robbed once and I did not want to give the guy my wallet, but I did. No, you did what you most wanted to do in that moment. Give your wallet or give your life. You chose your wallet. And that is every situation, every circumstance in our life, we do what we most want to do. And it's based on what we believe. So Peter now is going to say, false teaching lead to a certain kind of lifestyle, right? False teaching lives to foolish living. So let's jump in. Let's look at this. Verse 10b, 2 Peter chapter 2. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, 
blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction. First consequence is you begin to move your mouth. So Peter says these guys are bold and they're blasphemous. They speak junk. Have you noticed that eventually what you believe and what you think comes out of your mouth, that maybe you believe something about a person and eventually what you believe about that person comes out at the worst possible moment. Have you noticed that? Jesus says, Matthew chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That the bucket of the mouth dips into the well of the heart. And so what we believe in here, what we're thinking about right here, what's going on down in here will come out of our mouths. It's gonna come out. And this group of people, because of heresy, they begin to speak just kind of blasphemous. Blasphemy means this, there's nothing sacred. God's not sacred, Jesus is not sacred, sin isn't sacred, sex isn't sacred, death isn't sacred, babies aren't sacred. There's nothing off limits to the crassness. Okay, is that our culture today? So we have um, this theory, it's been taught now for 20 plus years. It's a product of postmodernism. And the theory is called this. If you've been to university in the last 20 years, it's called queer theory. You can Google it if you want, queer theory. And what queer theory says is this. It's queer theory is against anything that's normal, anything that's legitimate, and anything that's dominant. And they have a verb, it's called queering. And what queering says is this, you blaspheme it. As much as you can, you push out against anything that's legitimate, anything that's normative, anything that's dominant, and you try to topple it over. So it's called queering, literally. And it's been taught for the last 20 years in our universities as a way to change society. So the way the action of that takes place is this. It happens in politics. It happens in entertainment. If you turn off TV for a year or two and then you turn it back on, you'll be shocked at how far things have progressed against normative, dominant, legitimate ways of life because that's this theory in action. And it happens on our streets. And what, what the purpose is, is this. What they say is, you push out as hard as you can, as far as you can, as fast as you can, and then you, step one, you take one step back. And then people are like, oh, thank goodness, you're not very, that far out. But what has actually happened is you've moved society eons from where it was just weeks or months or a year before. That's happening all the time. And it's by saying, nothing is sacred. Everything has to be tore down. There's nothing normative, nothing legitimate, nothing good. It's what's happening in our culture right now. And that's step one of this, you move your mouth. But what happens when you move your mouth is number two, you start to move your body, check this out. Verse 13, suffering wrong as, they weigh, as a wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, 
insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Starts with your mouth, starts with your talk, and then you start to walk it out. Because your words will become your ways. Your conversation becomes your conduct. And these guys, they blaspheme, they push anything that's normative, everything is legitimate, nothing is sacred, and then they start to live it. Verse 13 says, right, they, they revel in the daytime. Most people do their junk at night and they quit in the day so no one sees them. Not this crew. They want to be seen. They want to shove it in your face. They want to do this. It's their desire. So Peter calls them blots and blemishes. Guess what that is? A zit, right? That's literally what, like modern translation, you zits. That's what Peter's saying. And it begins with the mouth and then it moves to what they do, their actions. So what's the clear warning here? Watch your words. Be careful what you talk about because our words create their own weather system. Have you noticed that? That you might have a conversation with somebody, your spouse, your kids, and then, and then immediately you start to kind of act on what you just talked about. So you start talking with your spouse about getting a new house. What do you start doing? Zillow, right? Let's see what's out there. What can we get? How much is my house worth? What, right? Immediately that's what happens. Hey, what about getting a new car? Once that's spoken, what do you do? Facebook marketplace. What's out there? What can I buy? Hey, let's take a trip to Hawaii. What do you immediately do? United Airlines, what do they got going on right now? Right, because once you speak it, something happens to us and we begin to act on those words, right? So here's the serious side of it. And I've had this conversation too many times with couples that say they believe in Jesus. And it's gone like this. It's always amazing to me. It begins with bad teaching, false teaching, just like Peter says. It begins with heresy. And then that heresy begins to move into what they do. It's why I taught the high school group a couple of months ago, month and a half ago, whatever. And the subject I have had was sex. So I had his sex talks with, with all our high schoolers. It was awesome. Yeah, my daughter was like, oh, dad, golly. <laughs> One of the questions they texted me was this, how far can we go? Because everybody wants God's approval. Like, how far can we go and God's still okay with us? Not how close can we get to Jesus, how close can I get to sin without it really being sin? Where's the line? Because everybody at their core wants to be okay with their heavenly father. So they need a bad theology that allows them to do what they want. So here's the conversation. And I had it pretty recently. Couple, I've totally blown up. Their marriage is blown up. Their kids are blown up. His career's probably blown up. Just bad. And it began like this. Well, these are professing Christians. It began with this. Well, we believe that it's not adultery if we both agree to it. You know what that is? False teaching. 
And once those words were spoke, here's what the husband told me. Once we said those words, it was like the ball was set in motion and we couldn't stop it. We kept talking about it more and more and more and more. And a third person was introduced and their life is a bomb now. Be careful of what you talk about. Be careful the words you put out there because it begins to create its own weather. That's what Peter is saying. Blasphemous words, nothing's sacred. Marriage isn't sacred. It's not two people for their entire life. It begins to change from that and look out. Once that ball gets rolling, it is hard. It's like Pandora's box. And barring a miracle from God, you're headed that direction. Barring a miracle from God. That's why one of my favorite, favorite verses in the Bible is Philippians 4, verse 8. We should have this one in our heads. It says this, finally, brothers, whatsoever is true, whatsoever is honorable, whatsoever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. That's the list. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. And a year ago, I gave you guys a brilliant acronym to Jesselself, right? People have made me shirts, T-shirts. I wear them around. They're like, it says just that on the front. People are like, what is that meaning? And it's usually on the back. Well, that's what it means. That's what you do. Ephesians 5.12 says this, it is shameful to speak of what they do in the dark. Be careful of your words. Because you create a weather, you create something, a seed that once it's planted in your head grows and the fruit is really, really bad. First you move your mouth, then you move your body, and then you follow Balaam. Look at this. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Here's what Balaam did. He prostituted himself. He sold himself to a sin. A sin he had entertained, a sin that had been spoken. Uh, He sold himself to it. If you don't know his story, read it. It's Numbers 22. It's just a brilliant story. Balaam is God's prophet. The people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness and there is this king who gets worried about the people of God and he wants to have them cursed. So he sends his dignitaries to Balaam and says, Balaam, could you curse God's people for me? Balaam says, I have to pray about it first. Good move. So he prays, God, can I curse your people? God says, no, you can't. So Balaam goes back to these dignitaries and says, no, I can't do it. Well, next day, more important dignitaries come to his house. And they say, would you curse God now or curse God's people now? And Balaam says this, even if you gave me a house full of gold, hint, hint, I cannot go beyond what God tells me to do. Guess what shows up the next day? house full of gold. 
So he prays and begs God, and God finally says, okay, go, but only say what I tell you to say. Here's what I think God was actually doing. He was saying, Balaam, are you really gonna do this? I have told you no. Are you really gonna do this? It's like sometimes what you do with your kids, when they beg and beg and beg, and finally you're like, go ahead. What you really want your kid to say is, you know what, I thought about that. And taking my tricycle to jump the Grand Canyon is a bad idea. I'm not gonna do it. That's what you're hoping, right? I think that's what God was hoping with Balaam, but no way. He gets on his donkey and he rides out there. He wants that room full of gold. On the way, his donkey won't move. So he starts to beat the snot out of the donkey and it actually lays down because the donkey could see something the prophet could not. In the path, there was an angel with a sword ready to cut off Balaam's head. So the donkey saved the prophet's life. And so he's beating the donkey and the donkey all of a sudden talks to Balaam and says, really? I have been your donkey for years. I have never done anything to hurt you. Here's the real miracle. Balaam talks to the donkey. He's not like, what, you can talk? Right, forget the room full of gold. I got a talking donkey. No, he's like, no, you know, it's just, it's just such a great story, right? It's such a great story. They actually made a movie about it. It's this movie right here. <laughs> oh. The point is this. Balaam had a price. He could be sold to his sin. He prostituted what he knew to be right for money. If you have a price... Satan will add zeros until he finds it. He'll come after you. He'll find it and he'll sell. You'll get sold into this. When people wanna disobey God, Satan always makes a way. When Jonah did not wanna follow through and preach to Nineveh, there was a boat waiting for him. When Judas wanted to betray Jesus, there was a bag of gold waiting for him. When Balaam wanted to curse God's people, there was a room full of gold waiting for him. Satan will find your price. He'll find it. Don't follow the way of Balaam because here's the problem. Whatever Satan promises you, it's a lie. He does bait and switch. Look at this next section. Verse 17, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. The bait and switch. They promise you water, they give you a desert. They guarantee freedom from repressive religion and hangups and stupid laws, and they give you slavery. That Satan's promises only end up in chains. And if you walk with somebody that got involved in sex or got involved in drugs or pornography or alcohol, you name it, man, they're stuck. They're stuck. They're not free. They wish they could stop now, but they're enslaved to it. 
And here's the big lie that we have been told. We've been told that freedom is an absence of restraint. Is that freedom? Is freedom doing whatever you want to do? Is that true freedom? I don't think so. Because right now we all have conflicting desires that you can't do both of, right? Like you can A, have desire A is, I want a six pack of abs. Desire B is, I want to eat a half gallon of ice cream and three pounds of M&Ms. You're not free to do both of those. You'll either have a six pack of abs or you'll have an ab singular. And it's your choice, right? You have to restrain one of those sides in order to do what you want. See, that's not freedom, right? Well, Matt, what is freedom? I'll give you an illustration of a goldfish. So um, we had a goldfish for a while and my daughters were very small then, three and two. And they loved to try to pet the goldfish. They'd put their hand in the goldfish tank and they'd try to pet the goldfish. And then it progressed to them pulling the goldfish out and petting the goldfish in their hand. And I tried to tell them, goldfish don't like to be petted. And my oldest daughter was like, yeah, they do. Look, he's smiling. I'm like, uh, that doesn't look like a smile. It's just a, right? That's not a smile. I don't know what that is. Okay. So imagine you're a goldfish. Pray you're not my daughter's goldfish. Right? And you're sitting in your little cage there and you're restrained by water and you look out and you see the couch and you think, oh, the freedom to recline on a couch. That'd be so awesome. Or you see the sandbox. Oh, the freedom to play around in a sandbox. Or the carpet. The freedom to just lay on the carpet. Right? Is a goldfish free laying on the carpet? What is a goldfish on the carpet? dead. It's going to the giant toilet bowl in the sky. When is a goldfish truly free? When it's swimming in the waters that it was designed for. Freedom is this. Freedom is doing what you are designed to do. All of us want that freedom. All of us want the freedom to do with the talents and the gifts and the experiences that we have to do what we were designed to do. Every person wants that. And so Jesus says, here's how that actually begins. It's Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all this other stuff, couches and sandboxes and carpets, all this other stuff will be added to you if you get that one thing right, because that's your purpose. That's what you're designed to do. What's sad is so many people miss that. Last night I was reading about Steve Jobs and uh, Apple founder, massive, you know, one of the most successful people in my lifetime. And they have, read his final words that he said. He said, all this money that I've gotten, all this fame I've gotten, all the accolades I've gotten are meaningless. You can get to the top and think that's freedom, but it's not, because you're designed for something bigger. You're designed to partner with God in his kingdom from now through eternity. That's what you're designed to do. So they, Satan bait and switches you. He thinks, oh, this will be freedom. This will be life. This will be awesome. And then he enslaves you to it. And you become, lastly, you become a beast. Look at this. Verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them, 
and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. They become beasts. So Peter uses a dog as an example. You guys have a dog? I had a dog for a while, golden retriever, Chloe. And I would take these walks up in Cathedral Hills with her like every day. And on Cathedral Hills, horses walk on those trails. And horses do what they do on trails, right? So there'd be these massive fresh mounds of doo-doo. And when Chloe would come up to a pile of manure, she would do one of two things with that pile of manure every time she came to him. She would number one, eat it, just woof it down. I mean, you're just like, what in the world? What would cause you to do that? You're going by and you smell this and you're like, dang, I gotta eat that. <laughs> or number two, she would just roll in it, just get in there and kick in it and just every, just, ah, oh, it was just insane. If you petted Chloe, I apologize because man, right? So think about your dog for a second. Fluffy, cute, wonderful, you know, oh, squishy. Here's, they can eat dog manure, right? They eat it. They eat horse manure, right? But they will eat something that is so bad, even though they can eat manure, they will eat something so bad that their stomach says, ah, that's, that's beyond me. Get it out, right? And they vomit it up. And then five minutes later, they come back to that same pile and what do they do? Yeah, try it again. Right? How insane is that? Isn't that just like sin? Like you talk to people that have been sucked in and they're enslaved to sin and they're crying and they're sad and they're saying, oh, I just want freedom from this. Help me. And you help them. And then 24 hours later, what are they doing? Ah, that wasn't so bad. I'll go back to that. That's the enslaving power of sin. It's vomit. And yet they turn back to it time and time and time. Again, they're an enslaved beast. What a brutal chapter, huh? What's the good news in this chapter? Here's the good news in this chapter. Over and over, here's the good news. That Jesus saves us. Over and over, what you see is the good news is Jesus saves us. That he sends to Balaam, a disobedient, terrible, bad prophet, he sends to Balaam a talking donkey. The lengths that God will go to save you and me is incredible. Like if you read the Bible clearly and read the Bible without like preconceived ideas, what you see is a God that comes after his people time and time again, right? Adam and Eve sin in the garden, treason against God. What does God do? Comes to them, cleanses them, helps them, blesses them, puts together a promise of redemption for them. 
over and over, the Bible is God comes and rescues people that don't deserve it. When he rescues the people from Egypt and they won't go into the promised land. For 38 years, they wander in the wilderness. And what does God do? Does he ignore them for 38 years? Passive aggressive? No, he feeds them manna every morning. It'd be like walking out of your door every morning, opening up and there on the welcome mat is a Denny's Grand Slam. How awesome would that be, right? You would not have abs, but that'd be okay. He covers them during the heat with a cloud and warns them at night with fire. The message of the Bible is simple. Yeah, we can wander and we are prone to wander. That the Christian life is not about you and me being perfect. Do you know that? The Christian life is you wake up and you realize I'm not a dog and I'm not in vomit anymore. I'm not a pig and I'm not walling in that anymore. I'm coming home like the prodigal. And every time we do, God has the door wide open and says, come back in. I'm gonna throw a party for you. Are you wandering right now? We're prone to water, I know that. Are you wandering right now? The father would say, come home. He's waiting, come home. Are you talking about things, sowing seeds in your brain that are gonna produce a really bad, bad crop? Stop. Stop it. That's the message of this chapter. We have this powerful thing called repentance. Repentance is I'm changing my mind so God will change my heart. That's what it is. I'm prone to head this direction right now and I know it's gonna destroy me so I'm going to repent of it in my head so God changes my heart so I don't even want it anymore. That's the power of repentance. You repent. And 1 John 1, 9 says he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from that. That's what we do. If you need prayer for that, after this service, there'll be people up here that love to pray for you. That wandering is what sheep do, right? Jesus leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Don't be enslaved though. Come back home is the message of 2 Peter chapter two. And that when we grab communion, what we're really doing in communion is this. We're remembering something. We're remembering that there's always room at the Father's table for us. That Jesus came, created a way for us back to the Father so that he could one day celebrate what's called the marriage feast of the Lamb with us. And this right here, it's an appetizer of the coming feast we'll have in the Father's house where there's room for every single one of us. And when we partake of it, we are living in expectation of that coming hope. So Jesus today, we hold your body broken so that we might be healed. We hold your body because of our broken ways because of our tendencies to believe the lies of the enemy, to wallow in the mire, to devour things we know are death. 
And so I pray for the Edgewater body this morning. Every person in here who has named your name as God and Savior, I pray that by your brokenness, we would be made whole. That we would turn from wandering, turn from sin, turn from the mire, turn from the vomit, and come to your house to live free, to live the way that we were designed, to swim in the waters of grace and acceptance in your love. So may we eat your wholeness and by faith would it heal us today. Let's eat together. cup the cup of forgiveness the cup of the remission of sin the cup that you held and said that you would not drink this cup again until that day the day that you return for us the day that the new kingdom is finished the day that we enter in to our destiny as kings and queens. And so I pray, Lord, that this cup would be a cup of hope. Hope for people that are being owned by sin right now. That you are greater than their sin. That you are greater than the lies of Satan. That you are the one that sets us free. And that we would take hope for those that have grown, grown weary in well-doing, may this cup be hope today. May it be hope that there is a reward, a reward for those that labor for you. May it be hope that you are going to return for us, that we do not need to let our hearts be troubled. May we drink hope. Let's drink together. Amen. We'll have prayer up here for any of your needs. For strength, the Bible says that we're to bear one another's burdens. And one of the ways that we do that is by praying. We have baptisms out here. Today is the day that you are saying, I'm going to profess publicly that Jesus is my King. We would love to do that with you. Baptism doesn't save you, Jesus does. But baptism is your first act of obedience to king and kingdom. And we would love to join in with you in that. If you're doing well, you had a really good turkey then. Be thankful. Stand for one final song, would you?